You're listening to A Climate Change. Uh, this is Matt Matter and your host. I've got Patrick Gilman on the program today from the Department of Energy. Patrick's an expert on wind energy and uh, uh, great to have you on the program, Patrick. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. Uh, Patrick, tell us a little bit about your position at the DOE and, and what you're doing there and, and what led you to that position. So I work within the Wind Energy Technologies Office in DOE, which is one of a bunch of technology-specific offices that are set up to do research and development to improve clean energy technologies and help get them deployed more quickly into the marketplace. My specific role is I'm the Modeling and Analysis Program Manager, which means that I help us understand what wind energy is, is doing in the marketplace today, what wind energy technology improvement opportunities are, and how they might impact wind energy's role in the electricity sector going forward. Uh, I've been with the DOE for um, 14 years and came to the position kind of in a serendipitous way. Um, I went to, to college, uh, at a little liberal arts school called Whitman in the wheat fields around Walla Walla, Walla, Walla Washington, and when I was there, they were building the first uh, wind energy projects um, in Oregon and Washington at the time within view of, of town. And I found out that the college owned the land underneath the turbines, so started going out there for visits and thought, hey, this would be a pretty cool thing to be involved in. Uh, fast forward a couple of years and uh, <clears throat> had the chance to move abroad and lived in China for a while. And when I was there, um, just the fact that you never saw a blue sky uh, really drove home to me the importance of working on um, the choices around how we use energy and what kinds of energy we use. Um, and so when I went to grad school, I had the opportunity to kind of combine those, those two things and did some work on the, the growth of the Chinese wind energy market, which kind of led me into this job at the DOE. And so here I am, almost 15 years later, still working on uh, wind energy and, and its place in our, our energy future. Well, it's an exciting uh, area to be working on, and and my understanding is that wind energy now is the cheapest form of generating electrical energy at this point in time. Is that is that an accurate statement? Yeah, there are some places in the in the country where wind energy is is now the cheapest source of new generation of any technology, even on an unsubsidized basis. Uh, but we're working to reduce the costs even further, both because we think there's significant room for those costs to come down still, but also so that we can make wind energy cost competitive basically everywhere in the United States, so that it can be an option in uh, in, in every state in the country. I mean, when I st- take a step back from this, it almost seems uh, kind of absurd or uh, like a dream state that uh, when I was growing up to think that wind energy would be something we would rely upon, it's, it was almost like laughable. Uh, because that was Don Quixote. That was that was uh, hundreds of years ago. We relied upon wind energy, but in the future, of course not. That's ridiculous. Like we didn't. There was not even a thought of that, or at least from my perception. What what changed? I think I think a couple things changed. One is that um, you know in the 1970s with the <clears throat> the energy crisis that happened then and the realization that we really needed to think about where we get our energy and how we use it. Um, A lot of interest came up in exploring technologies like wind and solar that don't uh, burn fossil fuels that aren't subject to sort of the volatility and the 
in the politics and the economics around them. Uh, and, you know, so people in, you know, in the United States and places like Denmark really started to work on the technology. And over the past couple of decades, um, you know, that, that work and innovation and also some, you know, important policy support given both at the state and federal levels in the United States has brought down wind energy costs to the point where it, it really started to make sense on an economic basis for people to, to pursue it. Um, and then just in the past decade, we've really seen, you know, as we've seen those costs come down, we've really seen that deployment curve go up to the point now where, you know, as, as you know, we, we don't really talk about um, renewable energy and alternative energy terms anymore, right? It's mainstream. Uh, and as, as you noted, uh, wind energy is now the cheapest source of electricity uh, in many parts of the country. And so it just makes good economic sense. Right. So uh, what is the uh, the government doing on a federal level to roll wind energy out further? And, and how did the the uh, Inflation Recovery Act or Ref Inflation Reduction Act, um, uh, you know, give uh, more wind in the sails, if you will, to, right. to those efforts? Um, so there's a couple of things. I mean, first, uh, we at the Department of Energy, our, our role is to help improve the technology and to address challenges to its deployment. And so uh, <clears throat> the federal government has invested uh, quite a bit of money to improve wind technology over the years and help drive the cost reductions that I just talked about. Um, it's also been really important uh, at the state and the federal level to have stable and solid policy support to make sure that there's a market for wind energy technology. And the Inflation Reduction Act takes a couple of really big steps forward there with respect to wind. First, it provides for long-term extensions to tax credits for wind energy uh, installation and production, which help make the economics more favorable everywhere that you might deploy wind energy. And so that we expect to see help, help uh, demand for wind increase significantly. Also, uh, it provides incentives to uh, wind manufacturing to help make manufacturing wind uh, turbine components uh, like wind turbine blades more cost effective in the United States to ensure that as wind energy demand goes up and more wind energy is deployed, that we are making those turbines in the United States and that the benefits from that manufacturing stay in the United States. Well, how are we doing as a country in terms of manufacturing the wind technology here? I know that in uh, the solar domain, a lot of it's being manufactured in China. Uh, I talked with previous guests about the IRA working to improve uh, the manufacturing capacity of the U.S. in solar. Uh, where do we stand regarding wind as far as what percentage of our wind technology is being created at home in the U.S.? So it's kind of a mixed story in wind. And I think um, on the one hand, it's been a really significant success. Uh, most of the wind, most of the content in a, in a wind farm that's installed in the United States is domestically produced. So we manufacture most of the uh, components in the sort of the machine head that sits on top of the tower uh, in the United States. We produce most of the towers in the United States. And until recently, we produced most of the blades that are used in, in wind turbines in the United States. But over time, as uh, particularly as, as blades um, have gotten larger uh, and more difficult to build, 
And because uh, when blades are very labor intensive, uh, manufacturing has started to sort of become less competitive in the United States. Uh, so for example, um, we've, we have had several major uh, wind turbine blade manufacturers close down shop in the United States over the past couple of years and expand operations in places like Mexico, where the labor is, is cheaper. And so what the Inflation Reduction Act will help to do is to reduce that cost uh, premium of producing in the United States. And at the same time, uh, we're working pretty hard on different ways to innovate uh, wind energy manufacturing so that in, over the long term, it becomes more cost competitive to produce those components in the U.S., and in terms of the curve of uh, adoption of wind technology, uh, where are we at on that on that curve, and where are we hoping to get, and and how fast are we climbing, and uh, what uh, you know are we realistically going to to meet the targets that the government has set for renewable energy, uh, in particular in wind? Yeah. So. Um... The United States, about 9% of our electricity right now comes from wind energy. And that is up um, significantly from when I started, uh, it's probably around 1% or even maybe below. Um, so wind energy is, has grown significantly over the past decade. And we're, we anticipate that there's still you know, significant growth ahead of us. As I mentioned, the Inflation Reduction Act um, you know, puts forth a really stable and positive, positive uh, policy environment for wind. And we continue to see cost reductions, which we think will help to drive deployment. That said, we're deploying about, um, you know, between 10 to 15 gigawatts on an annual basis, which, you know, think about that in, in terms of the number of wind turbines, we're installing several thousand large wind turbines uh, in the United States every year. On the one hand, that's a great success, right? Because there's uh, that's providing a lot of clean power. Uh, there are some states in the country that now get more than 50% of their energy from wind, um, Iowa and uh, South Dakota, for example. Um, and we see parts of the grid, like the Southwest Power Pool that manages um, electricity uh, across sort of the Great Plains from Oklahoma up into the Dakotas and Montana. We see regularly them achieving 75% uh, wind energy, but we've got a long way to go. Uh, as as you know, in order to, to decarbonize the grid by 2035, which is the Biden administration goal, uh, we need to significantly accelerate the pace of wind deployment. And that's going to be a real challenge, but we think it's achievable. Well, uh, you're listening to Climate Change and uh, our guest today, Patrick Gilman of the Department of Energy. Uh, he works in the Wind Energy Technologies Department, particularly on modeling, analysis, and uh, so we'll be back in just one minute to talk to Patrick about uh, what the DOE is doing and uh, what our future is going to look like vis-a-vis -vis wind. You're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Mattern, your host, and I've got uh, Patrick Gilman of the Department of Energy, uh, works in the Wind Energy Technologies Division, uh, particularly modeling, analysis, and, and programming. I want to kind of get to the specifics of uh, kind of the modeling and analysis that uh, work that you're doing there and uh, tell us about the significance of that. Sure. So, 
the wind energy technologies office basically has three goals. First, we want to reduce the cost of wind energy technology to make it affordable, uh, more affordable for all Americans and make it uh, cost competitive with other forms of electricity basically everywhere in the United States. We want to help wind play more effectively in the grid so that as we're operating the power system with more and more uh, technologies like wind and solar that are dependent on the weather, that we're not impacting reliability negatively and that we're providing value on all the services that the grid operators need to keep the lights on. And then finally, we're trying to work to accelerate deployment. As I mentioned, uh, we need to do that uh, significantly in order to meet the ambitious climate goals that the administration has set. And so my job within that context is to help us be good investors of taxpayer dollars, just like any other investor needs to do due diligence on, on where they're going to put their funds uh, we need to do that with taxpayer dollars. And so the modeling and analysis work that I lead is intended to help us be good stewards. And there are a couple of different parts to that. First is we need a really good understanding of what's happening in the wind energy marketplace and with wind energy technology. So we collect a lot of data and make it available to the public that shows you know, technology trends, trends in deployment, where wind turbines are being built, um, what kind of features they have, things like that. And I highly recommend that the wind energy technology market reports we put out every year on those subjects. Uh, second, we use those data and then a bunch of a diff different models and methods to look at uh, specific innovation opportunities to make wind energy technology uh, better, uh, more you know, affordable, getting at those cost reductions, help it play better in the grid, and then reduce barriers to its deployment so that we can accelerate deployment. And then finally, you know, we work with other offices at DOE to do big studies looking at different potential energy futures and think about how the innovations that we're assessing fit into that future and can change it. So if we're able to reduce costs by X amount, what, what impact could that have on deployment um, uh, you know, in, the, in the context of decarbonizing our grid over the past, over the next you know, 10 or 15 years? So in terms of uh, decarbonizing the grid by 2035, uh, how, how much growth does there need to be in the wind sector in order to kind of uh, achieve that uh, that goal? I, I realize there's other factors involved that are uh, solar and other geothermal and other forms of right. energy creation, but what would the wind target be? So there's lots of different pathways to, to get to uh, grid decarbonization by 2035. And so we don't have like a really specific uh, target with respect to wind energy deployment. What we do see is that, you know, if you look across all the studies that folks have done looking at uh, decarbonization of the U.S. electricity grid over that time frame, uh, most of the electricity on the order of say, you know, fifty to seventy-five percent is coming from variable renewables like wind and solar. And so, what that tells us is that we need to expand deployment really significantly. So, if you look at those studies uh, on the order of We'll need on the order of eight to 10 times more wind energy on the grid uh, in 2035 to accomplish uh, those targets than we do currently. We, for, for context, we have a, a little bit less than 140 gigawatts of, of wind energy already installed. So we're talking about you know, increasing that number to a terawatt, uh, so a thousand gigawatts or even more over the next decade plus. And that means we really need to ramp up the pace. Okay. 
So uh, it, it seems as though if you increased it by 10 times more, just my simple mathematics, if we're 9% now of uh, the total power uh, feeding the grid, uh, 10 times that would be 90%. Uh, is the growth of the need for electrical power that much that uh, that getting it increased by 10 time, tenfold will not get us to 90% uh, of uh, energy from wind. So the uh, the other thing that hap- that needs to happen over that time frame is if we're thinking about decarbonizing not just the electricity sector but also the broader economy, which uh, the administration has a goal of you know net zero carbon economy by 2050. Uh, we need to spend a lot of effort electrifying. Uh, different sectors of the economy than use electricity now. So right now, uh, I drive, you know, a vehicle that has an internal combustion engine that runs on gasoline. And if we want to see, if we want to be on 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 course to meet our 2050 economy wide targets, we need to be electrifying things like transportation uh, and industry uh, now. And so what what we what we think that means is that um, the demand for electricity in the economy goes way way up, and that's why. Uh, even if we're increasing uh, wind energy generation by a factor of 10, uh, we're only getting to levels of, of uh, wind energy like you know 40 to 60 percent and not the 90 percent that you mentioned. Okay, that's a, that's a good point. So I, I guess uh, one of the things that I've talked about with other guests is that uh, if we're creating all this, uh, electricity from from the wind and from solar, we're going to need to store it. And one of the things that uh, can store this energy is hy- in hydrogen. And then you can you can move the hydrogen around and use it in different uh, contexts for industry, possibly transportation. Um, what is the what is your office doing in regard to to that issue? Yeah. So. Hydrogen is a really important part of the energy picture, particularly for, as you said, energy long-term energy storage potentially uh, helping fill gaps where, you know, in in extreme situations where there's very little wind or solar resource available, uh, and we're working really closely with our colleagues and in the hydrogen and fuel cells technology office at DOE to explore those opportunities. One thing that we're particularly excited about right now is looking at how we can. Uh, use a combination of wind and solar and battery storage to help decarbonize steel and cement production. Those are those are both really energy intensive applications where right now you need, uh, in order to generate the heat for those processes, you need to burn fossil fuels like coal or natural gas. And where there really aren't options right now to fully decarbonize. And so uh, we're working with, with our you know, partner technology offices at DOE to explore ways that we can use wind uh, and solar and battery storage to fully electrify the, the steel making and the, the cement production process, uh, which you know would help significantly decarbonize those sectors of the economy as well. Well, where where are we at in terms of decarbonizing steel and cement production in particular, and, and how would uh, uh, you see that uh, decarbonizing uh, through through wind ener- energy's uh, inputs? So we're we're really just getting started. Um, the the DOE announced uh, a hydrogen shot um, earlier 
uh, in the administration looking at um, producing hydrogen at a cost of a dollar per gil- per kilogram by the end of this decade. And the majority of the cost associated with producing hydrogen through electrolysis, um, you know, with electricity, basically splitting water into hydrogen and oxygen uh, atoms is uh, the cost of the electricity in the process. And so uh, we're looking at ways that we can, you know, for example, combine uh, the electrical infrastructure associated with um, a wind turbine with the electrical, you know, the power electronics of of uh, electrolyzers that are used to produce hydrogen to see if we can reduce the costs of electricity going into hydrogen production to make that hydrogen cheaper so that it can be used uh, in in steel production and cement production for heat. So how how would uh, that work in terms of reducing the the electricity needs of an electrolyzer um, and kind of combination of creating cheaper hydrogen. So I think the, the key thing there is um, it's less about decreasing the, the, the need for electricity and more about making that electricity cheaper. If we can, if we can share some of the infrastructure associated with uh, the electricity that's produced by a wind turbine with the you know, the hardware that's used to produce the electrolyzers. So those are more closely linked and, and kind of integrated together. Uh, we can reduce the cost of electricity going in, which really reduces the cost of the hydrogen coming out. And that makes it cheaper and more cost effective to use hydrogen as opposed to, to natural gas or or coal in, in the heat that's needed for uh, steel and cement. Well, that's an exciting development and obviously something that... Uh we should be working on i uh i had heard that denmark is is also a leader in this as you had said earlier and and they produce sometimes up to 100% of their their electrical needs from their their wind generation and they're doing a lot of offshore wind um tell us a little bit about uh what offshore wind projects the us is working on and uh you know we'll be you know, making, uh, having a break in just a second, but at least you can start uh, talking about it before we go into the break. Yeah. So we, we see offshore wind as being a really important part of the, both the, uh, wind energy picture, but also the, the broader, uh, energy decarbonization picture going forward. The U S has a goal right now of, uh, getting 30 gigawatts of offshore wind deployed by the end of this decade. And, we believe that achieving that would really help kickstart a new industry that not only would help with decarbonizing uh, electricity along the coasts, but also bring a new industry to help revitalize working waterfronts across the country. Well, that's an exciting development. Uh, you're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Mattern, your host, and I'm talking to Patrick Gilman. Uh, we'll be back in just one minute. Uh, stay tuned. You're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Matter, your host. I've got Patrick Gilman of the Department of Energy. Uh, Patrick's an expert in wind energy technologies, works with modeling and analysis. And Patrick, we were just talking about offshore offshore wind before the break. Uh, why are we so far behind uh, the, I mean, the, um, the people, uh, the country of Denmark and other countries in deploying offshore wind? So I think there's a couple parts to this story. I mean, the first is that um, offshore wind is a relatively, you know, compared to some of the other energy technology options that we have is a relatively new 
relatively new player. And as a relatively new player, it's been relatively higher cost. And what that's meant um, is that, you know, because European electricity is more expensive uh, than it is in the United States by and large, it's been easier uh, both in terms of the economic case, but also the political case to provide uh, policy support to offshore wind uh, as a potential option. Um, in the United States, we're, we're blessed with like a huge amount of land compared to, say, the United Kingdom. And so we're much farther ahead in, say, land-based wind uh, energy deployment, um, but behind an offshore wind again, because we uh, haven't needed to access those more, co- you know, more costly resources off of our coasts. That said, um, we're, we're on a pathway to catching up pretty significantly here over the next decade. And the reason for that is because, um, you know, more and more states and the federal government obviously see the need to decarbonize the electricity sector and get get a fossil fuel pollution out of it. Um, And so states like uh, Massachusetts and New York, lots of states along the Atlantic coast more broadly, uh, have set ambitious targets for offshore wind deployment. There's more than 40 gigawatts of offshore wind that are now in the development pipeline and that we expect to see deployed over the next decade and a half or so. And uh, the big, you know, a big part of that, big part of those advantages of offshore wind, you know, those states can turn to it because they have less uh, land available for doing things like deploying large wind or solar facilities. Uh, And because of the success of what's happened in in Europe with offshore wind, um, where, you know, now there's close to 50 gigawatts deployed, the costs have really, really come down to the point where now looking at an offshore wind farm in the United States uh, is not that much different in a cost uh, perspective than uh, deploying a large-scale land or solar facility in those same states. And more broadly speaking, I think uh, we see the opportunity for the growth of a really uh, important potential new industry um, that brings jobs back to you know, working waterfronts that have declined over the past uh, 50 years. Um, bringing manufacturing to, to ports, um, bringing new opportunities for maritime workers, uh, and bringing new jobs into the communities that that host the ports and vessels associated with offshore wind. Well, I know there's a, a geography issue with uh, the difference between putting offshore wind on the East Coast and the West Coast, in that the West Coast has a uh, steeper declining shoreline, so it's harder to kind of put it on the, the coastline. Um, what about uh, the Gulf of Mexico and and Florida and are those places uh, places that are good candidates for offshore wind? Yeah, so we'll speak to the Gulf first, and then I want to touch on the point that you made about the West Coast. Uh, we think that there's a, a pretty significant opportunity in the Gulf for offshore wind deployment. And while the sort of the wind resources there are not as strong as they are in other parts of the country, you know, compared to say the Northeast or off the coast of California. Um, the big advantage that the Gulf has is a really uh, large and skilled industrial base and workforce associated with offshore oil and gas that has really important and relevant skills necessary to uh, that are directly translatable to to offshore wind. Um, and as we are w- working towards economy wide decarbonization, especially, uh, you know, offshore wind offers a really a great potential pathway for workers transitioning from those oil and gas industries. So we think that there's uh, some really exciting things that could be done in the Gulf. 
Um, with respect to the West Coast, let me just jump made, in there for a yeah, second please. on the Gulf and and ask you about uh, the danger of hurricanes and and knocking out uh, wind installations like this. Uh, what's to save those from uh, the damage of hurricanes? Yeah, so that's a really important point uh, and something that we're working hard to address. The the technology standards to which all of the big wind turbine manufacturers need to to build their turbines were really developed, you know, at least for the offshore context with uh, Northern Europe in mind. And obviously in the North Sea, they don't have to deal with hurricanes. And so we're working uh, with the industry, um, with other federal agencies to update those standards so that uh, the wind turbines that are deployed in places like the Gulf are robust to um, hurricanes. Now, obviously, uh, you know, if you have a strong enough hurricane, almost no matter what you build, it's going to it's, there's going to be a significant issue, but uh, we're we're working to make the technology significantly more resilient, so that um, on kind of a lifetime basis, uh, they're resilient to the kinds of storms that they're likely to see. Okay, and uh, so what are what's the DOA doing to uh, have offshore wind deployed, say, off of California or the West Coast, and and maybe even uh, Alaska, because th- there's a tremendous amount of shoreline there. Yeah, so um, as you mentioned, the, the continental shelf drops off very quickly. The water gets very deep off of places like California and Oregon uh, as you move away from shore. And so the, the technology that's, that, that's been used in Europe uh, largely to date and the technology that people are planning to deploy on the East Coast where you have a turbine sitting on top, excuse me, sitting on top of a foundation that's drilled directly into the seabed doesn't work. And so you need to find ways to to make those turbines sit on floating platforms. And, and so we're working uh, really hard to advance the cause of floating offshore wind um, and bring the cost down there. We just announced uh, a couple of weeks ago, a floating, floating offshore wind shot, um, which you know, similar to the hydrogen shot that I mentioned, uh, so the, uh, the administration is making a commitment to bringing all of the resources to bear from the different federal agencies that are involved uh, to reduce the costs of floating offshore wind by 70% by the middle of the next decade, by 2035, and to deploying 15 gigawatts of floating offshore wind in, off, off the coast of places like California, uh, in the Northeast and deeper waters off of Maine, for example, and in places like Hawaii uh, over the next 15 years. Well, those are big goals. And uh, where are you at as far as... Uh actually getting the cost reduction of 70%, uh, uh, where do we stand right now? And is it realistic to think that we can get a 70% cost reduction in that amount of time? So that it's it's a really ambitious goal. Uh, it'd be really clear about that. And it'll require you know everything that the federal government and industry can throw at it to make it happen. But you know, if if we're able to that, you know, big challenge right now with floating offshore wind is that you have uh, the structures that the turbines sit on are typically they're they're copied over from again the offshore oil and gas industry where there's been lots of experience with putting really big heavy things on top of floating structures for a long time. The challenge in in offshore wind with respect to floating structures is that you need to build a lot of them and very quickly. And so we're trying to figure out a way to get from that sort of one-off uh, builds that are common in the oil and gas space to producing these giant platforms uh, serially and serial production, like 
almost on an assembly line basis so that we can uh, churn them out much more quickly and cheaply. And that's sort of the, the fundamental uh, kind of technical challenge. Uh, the other thing that we need to do is continue to make uh, offshore wind turbines, which are already huge, by the way, um, even bigger so that we need to deploy fewer of those platforms and do you know, less work out in the ocean and you know, run less cable between turbines because all of those things are really expensive. So the bigger we can make the turbines, the cheaper we can make the power. So um, where do we see where do we see that going in terms of offshore's co- contribution to our total uh, energy needs and goals as compared to onshore? It, by so, say twenty thirty five yeah. or by twenty fifty, say. So, um, land based wind is going to play a larger role just in terms of the absolute amount that's being. Uh, deployed and is used in in the electricity sector, um, and largely because there's uh, more room and it's lower cost compared to some of the alternatives like like offshore wind. Uh, where we see offshore wind playing a really important role is in sort of coastal states where uh, building land based wind and solar at the scales that are necessary to drive the carbon out of the grid isn't really possible, and where uh, it's more difficult to bring uh, those you know, wind and solar resources over long transmission lines to the coasts. So offshore wind is gonna play a really important role in, in places like the Northeast, where it's difficult to build transmission and where the, the, the centers of electricity demand are really right along the coast, where the, you know, in fact, quite close to the offshore wind resource. And in places like California, where uh, there, there's a huge amount of electricity demand, uh, and again, where the resource is strong and where, again, it's more challenging to build long-haul transmission lines in from the interior of the country. So where we see land-based wind potentially you know, meeting up to half, say, of, of the nation's electricity needs, we see offshore wind as being a smaller resource on the order of, say, 5 to 10%, but still playing a really significant role. Uh, in places where it's harder to build land-based wind and solar and other clean resources. Well, I appreciate uh, your elucidating that for us. Uh, you're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Mattern, your host, and I've got Patrick Gilman uh, from the Department of Energy, Wind Energy Technologies. And uh, we'll be right back in just a minute with Patrick. I've, I've got a follow-up question for him about uh, how... Maybe we we could address those energy needs a little bit differently. So stay tuned. You're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Mattern, your host. I've got Patrick Gilman of the Department of Energy on the program. And Patrick, we were just talking about uh, offshore wind and the need for it along the coast, as you had said. Uh, I was just curious as to whether or not maybe if we have... uh, uh, substantial offshore wind and and uh, solar and other forms of renewables, uh, couldn't we generate, uh, as we were talking about earlier, hydrogen and pump that to the coastal regions that may not have as much uh, access to, say, wind or solar energy themselves, but certainly you could uh, ship or transport hydrogen uh, via um, pipelines or things of that nature to uh, to get that energy to them. Yeah, I think that's a really important potential application for, for offshore wind. I mean, one thing we see 
uh, happening already in Europe is plans for so-called energy islands where they're literally building um, lands off off the coasts to gather uh, electricity from from wind and use it to produce uh, hydrogen that, that they can use then you uh, you know draw on either for for long-term storage when there's uh, periods where our wind is is less productive or for use in other things like making uh, maritime fuels I and mean, there's a there's a big discussion right now happening that we're kind of on the periphery on but uh, we're following in, in how folks are thinking about decarbonizing shipping, for example, that offshore wind could help play a role in. Well, shipping certainly is a big source of pollution. Has there been much movement on decarbonizing it and, uh, you know, maybe through hydrogen or other means? Uh, you know, again, we're sort of on the periphery of that conversation, but that there's a lot that folks are thinking about. Um, you know, where we're really focusing is is again in how we can most effectively combine wind and hydrogen, whether that's um, you know thinking about uh, directly elect you know, electrolyzing hydrogen offshore at the site of offshore wind turbines, if or bringing electricity back to the shore and and, and producing the hydrogen shoreside. Uh, we're looking at a lot of those different potential technology combinations and what might make the most sense for applications like uh, marine fuels in in partnership with with our colleague offices and uh, who work uh, more exclusively on hydrogen and on maritime decarbonization. Maybe a couple of interesting uh, potential technologies. One was uh, I saw sails on the uh, some large container ships and, and whether or not that was something uh, you at the DOE, any of you at the DOE are working on or something or things like that. What are the kind of t- cutting edge new technologies we should be on the look out for? Well, we we in the uh, Wind Energy Technologies Office, we haven't done much work on, on the maritime propuls- propulsion side, uh, though I do think it, it, I occasionally try to convince some of our engineers that it would be fun to look at some of those uh, new kind of sail concepts for uh, container ships, but so far no success there, uh, at least from from our end. But again, we're, we're really focused on uh, trying to help our sister uh, offices and agencies that are working like really diligently on on issues like maritime decarbonization figure out how they can w- use wind as a tool in those processes what about uh wind on on people's homes or on businesses or things of that nature uh smaller turbines i mean we've seen a uh, kind of a revolution in in rooftop solar on people's homes i mean even if it doesn't generate a ton of power is that is there anything worth uh considering so we're looking at distributed wind so that is wind that's being used to produce power on site or locally uh not needing to be transported across huge uh, uh transportation or trans transmission line sorry or being deployed in you know 100 megawatt wind farms we're looking at uh, distributed wind pretty hard right now because there's there is a lot of potential there. Um, you know, an NREL study that we put out uh, this year found more than 1.4 terawatts, 1,400 gigawatts of economic potential today uh, for distributed wind and different sort of turbine size classes, ranging all the way from you know micro turbines that you would use to to power a home all the way up to um, utility scale wind turbines deployed. Uh, at like a, say a factory to provide onsite power. Um, and there are places where that makes a lot of sense. So if you're looking at an agricultural producer that uses a lot of electricity, like say a dairy farm, 
uh, out in the middle of the country in rural areas, wind is a distributed wind is a pretty effective, cost-effective option. Um, the smaller you go and the more urban you go, uh, the more challenging it gets. So solar's superpower is that you can deploy it almost anywhere. You can put it on a roof. Uh, you, you can fit it into urban spaces. Um, there are solar panels down the road for me uh, that <clears throat> are installed on the wall of a tall building. Uh, wind, uh, by contrast, you need uh, open space uh, and you need good wind resources, which are hard to find uh, when you get into sort of heavily built up environments. So it makes a lot of sense uh, in places where electricity costs are high, where the wind blows and where there's ample land. So uh, in rural communities, we think distributed wind offers a huge amount of potential. So in terms of uh, effect on the environment of, uh, you know, I've talked to another guest on the program in, in the past who was a doctor, uh, had a PhD in, in fluid dynamics and, uh, and also was involved in wind research and development. And uh, what, what is the effect of having all these wind turbines set up? Are we going to potentially adversely affect the, the wind patterns uh, around the world? And uh, what, are the, what are the studies on that? Yeah, so we, we have looked at this a little bit. And, <clears throat> you know, at really, really high levels of deployment. So if you're talking about, a, you know, say the terawatt of wind, that's needed to, to get to uh, the you know, grid decarbonization targets. It's certainly possible that, that will have um, some you know, climatic effects, right? Because you're taking energy out and that affects uh, particularly how <clears throat> air and kind of the lowest layer of the atmosphere mixes. And so there have been studies that find you know, a little bit of, of warming associated with large-scale wind deployment. That said, uh, the global benefits associated with deploying wind, we think significantly out, outweigh those potential challenges. So uh, Lawrence Berkeley Lab uh, in their annual wind technology, uh, you know, the market report um, tracks the, the benefits from, from health and from climate associated with wind deployment uh, based on where wind plants have been built and the kinds of power that they're displacing. And you know, this year for wind plants built in 2021, their estimate is that the value that wind provides, both in terms of avoided climate uh, impacts, avoided air pollution and associated health effects, and then just the direct value it provides to the grid in terms of uh, energy and capacity, uh, that those values sort of combined are more than three times the cost of the wind energy from those uh, facilities. So there's a lot of work that we do have to think about in terms of environmental impacts, not just you know on on sort of the um, you know wind patterns and, and and weather and climate effects as you said, but also uh, impacts to uh, wildlife, impacts to local communities. Uh, but we think that there's you know a lot of the work that we do is focused on um, overcoming those impacts, mitigating them, and making sure that wind is on a net basis uh, beneficial to the places where it's deployed. In terms of efficiency, um, are the turbines getting more efficient so that the amount of wind that it takes to turn the turbine is less so that uh, you know ultimately that would mean there is less stress on the 
you know, the fluid dynamic issue if if you're getting more efficient turbines. Is that is that occurring? So we need less wind to produce more power? Yeah, something that a, a technology trend that that we're seeing and and have really helped to drive with with research that we've done in the past is uh, in the United States, we're seeing larger and larger rotors so that longer turbines with longer and longer blades being put on machines of the same size. So the average rotor size of a machine 10 years ago uh, was on the order of say, you know, 80 meters. Uh, now it's, it's like 120 meters. Uh, and what that means is that each of those wind turbine blades, um, even if you're, you know, on a, on the same sort of two or three megawatt machine, um, you're able to capture a lot more wind, uh, from that same tower than you were, uh, with a turbine 10 years ago. And that significantly reduced the cost. Uh, been a big driver for the cost reductions that we've seen and really significantly improved the value of wind to the grid in places where those turbines with larger rotors are being deployed. So do you see that uh, continuing to increase the the rotor size uh, uh, or is there a, 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 an area of diminishing returns at some point? Um, so that it's it's complicated, but we definitely see rotor size, you know, continuing to increase. In the US, the, the biggest challenge actually to getting uh, bigger blades put out on turbines is logistics. These are just really big pieces of, of equipment and they're very difficult to move over the road or rail networks. And so we're looking at uh, ways to build longer blades, both so that they fit within those sort of corridors that you need to, to go through. So they fit under highway overpasses and around rail turns. Um, but also thinking about how we can build blades in such a way that they're modular so that you can transport a couple of smaller, still big probably, but smaller pieces and then assemble them on site to enable those, those blades getting bigger. Well, it's uh, been a pleasure having you on the program, Patrick. Uh, Patrick Gilman from the Department of Energy, Wind Technologies, Wind Energy Technologies. Uh, Patrick, uh, in closing, uh, where do you see the future as far as... Uh, in the next few years where your team is going to be focusing uh, most of your energies? So I think that uh, I talked a little bit about offshore wind and floating offshore wind in particular. Um, I think the other big thing that we're going to be spending a lot of our time on is thinking about how we can help deploy wind in ways that are uh, to that ensure that that benefits flow to local communities and stay with local communities and that local communities are helping to drive deployment decisions. So we're going to be thinking about how we can work with uh, state governments and local governments um, to help make sure that their voices are considered in the development process and that they're getting a good deal when they're seeking when they're deploying wind energy so that uh, we can continue to you know accelerate deployment and get uh, the levels of of wind and solar that we need on the grid to to meet our clean energy goals. Well, great work, Patrick. Uh, really uh, great having you on the program and giving us a kind of an update and overview of the work that you're doing. And uh, keep on uh, keep on doing it. And uh, we'll hopefully talk to you in the future. And look forward to hearing uh, great things from you going forward. That would be great, Matt. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. 